You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, it's that time of year again, time for our annual audience survey. You know, every year we conduct an audience survey to learn more about you, get your feedback, and help shape Revision Path for the future. To take the survey, go to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. It only takes about five minutes or so to complete, and it would really help us out a lot. Again, that's revisionpath.com forward slash survey. The survey will close at midnight Eastern time on May 1st, 2019. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. One of the great things about Facebook Design is that research is closely integrated into what they do. Research helps the product team ensure that they're answering questions that will have the biggest impact and mean the most to customers. Sound interesting? Then learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is so much more than just email. Sure, you can use it to create unique campaigns to help get the word out about your business, but you can also use it to create social media ads on Facebook and Instagram, and it connects with hundreds of other tools to help unlock new features. Use their automation features to streamline your work, then watch the results roll in with customized reports that will help you optimize your efforts. Pretty dope, right? Get started transforming your business today at MailChimp.com. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Chicago-based artist, educator, and designer, Jonathan Sangster. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Jonathan Sangster. I'm an artist, designer, and assistant professor. I teach at Chicago State University, uh, and I generally frame myself as a maker of all sorts because I float in that weird realm in between art and design. Uh, and I don't really like, you know, to pin myself down anyway. I don't think mm -hmm. it's necessary. I think a lot of the value in, or if you're trying to determine what your title is, I think the value is more in looking at what you make as opposed to, you know, what you call yourself. So what, what would you say that you make? <laughs> Well, I make a, a lot of different things. Uh, <laughs> at the moment, uh, I'm focusing very heavily on translating uh, ideas and thoughts from a lot of different fields like uh, physics and philosophy and feminist literature into uh, screen printing projects that I'm focusing on. Mm -hmm. uh, the one that I just did that was exhibited at the most recent Typeforce exhibition uh, is actually called Rebecca Solnit, um, who's a favorite author of mine. Uh, the piece takes a quote from a book that 
has been really influential to me called the mother of all questions. And the quote itself is naming is a crucial part of transformation, which, you know, is really short, but to me really thought provoking and really powerful. Mm -hmm. So in my work, I'd like to focus on these ideas of both conceptual and physical layering, uh, layering the ideas and thoughts so that they all interact with each other in unexpected ways. But I also like to take that idea of layering and apply it physically mm -hmm. with physical materials, but also technologically using older technology and newer technology to get at an interesting uh, relationship in terms of output. So it sounds like it's kind of a multidisciplinary kind of practice in a way. It is. And it's one of the ways that I like to focus on working. Like I don't like uh, to start with an idea and then pin it down to uh, this idea has to be created this way or made this way. Like there's never a point when I sit down and go, all right, I have this idea and this definitely has to be made on a computer. Talk to me about your creative process in your work. Like how do you approach a new project that you want to work on? I think I approach new projects from a really large and nebulous way. I also, and I think this gets into the idea of why a lot of my designer colleagues point at me and go, yeah, but you're not really a designer. You're more of an artist. Uh, because when I'm looking at, we're trying to figure out what an idea should look like or how it should function. Like a large part of that is, you know, looking at like what interests me <laughs> or like what uh, particular medium I'm interested in working in. Right. So it's definitely not, you know, as objective <laughs> as one would think a designer should be focusing on working in. Okay. Like with the piece that I designed for Typeforce, like I was focused on the idea that, well, I wanted to you know, work with translating something from literature that I'd read. But another huge part of this was the fact that I was going to have a you know large 12-foot wide wall to work on. So that became one of the defining aspects for what it was going to be. In my mind, like if I have that much space, then I want to make something that is conceptually large and function as like one huge piece, but also be made up of, you know, multiple pieces on their own. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I hadn't had the opportunity to work with space that was that large, then the idea would have been totally different. Okay. So it sort of sounds like, um, you're focused more on the idea, not necessarily the the medium of how it, well, I guess it kind of plays in both ways, right? Like you said, you, you kind of try to fill the space based on the idea. Yeah, like it, it, it goes back and forth, I think. I think that in a lot of my work, I like to focus on, you know, what my own curiosities are, but also focusing on uh, being able to experiment, right? And let what something is going to be come out of the process of doing it. Yeah. I try to leave space in my, you know, creative work for like adjustments and path. Like what like if I set out to make something, like it doesn't necessarily have to end up being whatever that initial visual idea was. I saw when I was going through your portfolio, there's this one project, uh, it's a pair of posters and it's inspired by the book Gender Trouble by Judith Butler. Uh, can you describe that for the audience? Like just describe the project and then kind of mention this, this analog digital layering practice 
that you used for that particular project? Okay, so that project is interesting to me because it started in a place that is very comfortable for me, right? Which is thinking about combining different mediums. I do, I practice uh, 35 millimeter photography as well as, you know, a lot of other different creative uh, mediums and methods. But, but this one, I started from a place where I wanted to combine literature and photography. So I thought that, you know, doing a poster would be one of the best ways to do that. But then it becomes different because, you know, unlike a typical design project, uh, it, it's not, it wasn't about a straightforward communication as much as it was uh, trying to provoke thought, encourage critical thought, and also, you know, get it some sort of emotion that's brought about by uh, the quote itself. And, well, I'm just going to like, read the quote. And so it is, and this is Judith Butler. There is no gender identity behind the expressions of gender. That identity is performatively constituted by the very expressions that are said to be its results. Hmm. And for me, like that means a lot conceptually, right? Because it gets at this idea that like, we as people construct these ideas that you know, become the boxes that we're supposed to perform in. Mm -hmm. Like with this one specifically, if you're looking at the idea of gender, like the idea of a man or a woman becomes these weird societally built uh, boxes of what a man is and what a man does and what a woman is and what a woman does. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes, you know, bizarre if you think about it, because we as a society and a culture are the ones that determine what these, you know, identifying factors are. Like they're not something that just exists. Yeah. So taking an idea like that conceptually and combining it with uh, photography is interesting because you get into ideas of uh, concrete visualization and also abstraction in looking at what our what our eyes think something is versus what it actually is. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know, working in that way and combining these types of concepts and ideas is really interesting. Do you have a dream project that you would love to work on or any, any sort of like big personal project? You know, that's really interesting. And I'm not entirely sure that I, I do uh, because one of the things that drives me creatively is being able to pursue questions and pursue methods and visual outputs that I'm not familiar with or comfortable with so you know my it's not even a dream project but a dream situation would be to be able to function in like a uh art studio or design studio that was more built like a scientific lab that was more about you know coming up with what interesting questions are and what interesting experiments are and then you know pursuing that and not necessarily looking for mm -hmm. you know right or wrong answers or you know a shiny finished project when did you know that this was what you wanted to really do for a living did you like have a, a like a very creative childhood how did this spark to create come about i think so uh 
I'd have to you know call my mom to confirm this, but I think very very early on I was interested in creating and making, which typically uh, looked like you know drawing, um, which I think you know isn't atypical for for children, but I think I just held on to it longer, and then that turned into you know more interesting paths in high school and continuing to draw like in Chicago I was in the gallery 37 program in high school which was really cool we were you know downtown in this huge uh like lot in the middle of downtown that's set up with all these tents where you know the students engage in you know various art practices and that was you know one of the things that was really influential for me like I focused on uh, printmaking, mm-hmm. which was really cool uh, because that's one of the points when, you know, you start to figure out, oh, okay, like I like drawing and this is another way of image making. And then, you know, follow that path down. You start to wonder what are the ways and methods and ideas are behind image making. So that was the you know, beginning of the path for me. And it also allowed me to, you know, explore quite a bit uh, visually. Like I was always into, you know, comic books and art. And then when I got older, that turned into a fascination with uh, contemporary art and abstract art and what these things look like. I was always interested in graffiti, which, you know, turned into an interest in, uh, artists like Jenny Holzer and you know Christopher Wool, and looking at how typography is used in art and like what that means, which you know further down the road in grad school leads me to you know questions like what if you've got an artist using type and designers using type, like what the you know differences are in you know, methodology or in you know, direction. Let's go back to teaching. You mentioned you're an assistant professor of design at Chicago State University. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what's a typical day like for you? What courses are you teaching? You know, stuff like that. I teach two different classes. This semester, I'm teaching uh, typography one and graphic design three. Uh, so days like that are interesting because you've got, you know, the freshmen learning the very beginnings of, you know, typography and graphic design and the anatomy of type and everything that's involved in constructing visual language. And then the other half of the day is, you know, teaching graphic design three, which is more complicated. Uh, This is teaching juniors and seniors about branding identity and identity systems and Mm -hmm. how all of these things function in the world. So it's interesting to, you know, have that dichotomy in my day of experience levels, but I love teaching. I've always loved teaching. I've always loved education. Uh, I think my mom did a really good job of stressing the importance of mm-hmm. what education is and how useful a tool it can be, and that has stuck with me ever since. Um, so, you know, I take the educational part of my you know, interests and careers very seriously, and I try to uh, stress that importance to my students as well. Uh, in my teaching a lot of the methodology that I use tends to be or focus around the Socratic method of you know, teaching, which is, you know, 
simply just mm -hmm. focusing on the questions, like what the questions are, how to ask questions and ask the right questions and figure out you know, what the questions are before you can even start to get at this idea of what an answer is. Mm. I mean, it can be particularly frustrating for some students yeah. uh, trying to foster ideas of critical thinking, but I think that it's, you know, exceptionally beneficial, especially in terms of crafting independent thinkers and people that are going to, you know, change and mm. craft the world eventually. Now you've also taught at several other colleges in the Chicagoland area. Um, throughout all those experiences, what would you say your students have taught you? I think my students more than anything teach me uh, empathy and patience. Um, they teach me how to get out of myself um, when I'm communicating and when I'm trying to relate an idea. Like it's really important as an educator to remember that everybody's not you and not everybody thinks the way that you do or processes the way you do. And you know, teaching is every day you know, minute by minute opportunity to, you know, practice that idea. Mm -hmm. uh, like, I think that being able to, you know, teach something and empathize with people that you are trying to share knowledge with is also interesting because it, you know, reframes the way that you interact with people on a regular basis and communicate people with people on a regular basis, too. Now, I have a question here. This comes from uh, Sella Lewis, who has been a friend to the show. She's also been on the show as well. And she wanted to know, you know, with artists like Kanye West and Virgil Abloh finding success in fashion, design and architecture, of course, they're from like the Chicagoland area. What have you seen any kind of a growing interest in black artists and designers in the Chicago land area, that question is interesting because I don't, uh, I don't know if I would say that I've seen any sort of like, spark or growth based on high-profile people that you know isn't natural of Chicago and creators and makers and black artists and designers in Chicago. I think that like we do a really good job of inspiring ourselves and being part of communities where all of these things are happening all the time. So I think that I would, you know, give the credit more to the people on the ground that are doing it and not necessarily, you know, the more visible people. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I know what you mean. Like certainly I think um, it's important to be able to show, not that there are just examples out there. I think it's great. You know, if, if students are emulating these designers, that's great. But like you said, it also has to kind of come from the personal mm -hmm. journey. They have to want to do it themselves, not just because Kanye's got a line out there like, oh, I'm going to put a line out too. doesn't really work that way. Yeah, no, I agree. I tell my students all the time and I have conversations with my colleagues where, you know, I focus on this idea or I believe that like if you're a, a maker of any sort, like artist, designer, whatever, like you, you should feel, you know, compelled, <laughs> like there should be a compulsion to, you know, be making things, right? Like it doesn't matter how small an idea or how big or whether you believe that it's going to go somewhere or be something and go out in the world and be successful or not. It's like, you should feel compelled to be making. And that's something that's, you know, deeply personal. Mm-hmm. 
And I also think it's kind of problematic when we, it's like, it's good to have examples, right, of, you know, people of black creatives out in the world, you know, doing things, being inspirational and showing people that, you know, you can be successful with these things. Yeah. But I also think the idea of celebrity is something that's very dangerous. I think in America, we uh, tend to overvalue uh, high profile people. And there becomes this placement of value on, you know, everything that they do and say that becomes very dangerous because if you've got a successful high profile person, then the conversation starts to become, well, if this person's successful, then everything they're doing must be great. Right. That's that can be a trap. Yeah. That can be very dangerous, especially for uh, younger people. Uh, that are seeking inspiration and looking for um, people to emulate and role models. This is why I think that the idea of critical thinking is so important, right? Like if you're inspired by what someone makes, that's great. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you might need to take a deeper look at what, <laughs> what they're saying <laughs> and look at how that's different from, you know, what, what they're making and look at what's inspirational to you and what's useful to you mm -hmm. and take parts that are useful and inspirational and, you know, leave the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, for you, what is the Chicago design community like? So the design community in Chicago, I think is, is great and it can be very welcoming and very inclusive, but I think that we should be very careful how we, proceed in the future in terms of who we are like what what we are and who we're allowing to participate in our conversations mm. now are you active in the community at all aside from just being an educator i am active in the community i participate i'm a member of the creative morning chicago community uh, i'm a part of aiga where i and the co-lead for the diversity and inclusion committee here. And these ideas of inclusion are, you know, often at like right at the front of my mind because they're, they're really important. <laughs> um, especially if you're trying to build or sustain a community, mm -hmm. like the IGA in, in Chicago, right? You have to think very deeply about, what this group is, what the community is, right? And if you're talking about diversity and inclusion, like that shouldn't just be a buzzword. You should be looking at how diverse and how inclusive your community is and always trying to push that idea forward. Is that a problem that you run into a lot through AIGA Chicago? I think that it's a problem in general with any sort of <laughs> organized association. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of professional organizations, but, um, I mean, I think that the nature of them is to, you know, be a club, right. Where the idea is to make people feel special and like they're part of a club, which automatically means that other people are not <laughs> involved and not included and invited. Right. So the handling of an idea like that, being part of an association needs to be looked at very very closely with the design community and 
the IIGA in Chicago, I think we do a really good job of trying to be inclusive and welcoming. But I think that there are some ideas that are very established that sometimes aren't looked at, you know, critically, right? Like the, for me personally, the idea of um, like money in general is always going to be a, a great divider, mm. especially in a place like America where it's a consistent focus, right? So if you were charging someone like membership fees and you're also charging them money for events that are you know, awesome and, and educational and you've got a person like, you know, a, a student, like $5 isn't going to be a lot of money to like me or an established professional, but it might be to them, right? Like about what to spend $5 on, a very serious conversation, right? So then it becomes, are you doing more, more harm by mm -hmm. using money as the, you know, key through, through the gate, right? Mm. Like, is that the most inclusive way to, to handle it? Like, are you excluding people just based on, you know, money being part of your model for inclusion? The answer to that is yes, but please continue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, right? Like you have to, it's like, but these are things that I don't think a lot of people, you know, th there isn't that idea of empathy or the idea of, you know, other people's perception, like that, that isn't really part of the conversation. It's like, yes, like, like you're a nonprofit organization. Yes need money to you know continue to put on programming but right the question is like one can you get that money someplace else right and two are you alienating people by saying that they need to have a certain amount of money or make a certain amount of money to be included i mean the answer to that is yes too i mean i i <laughs> i know i'm being you know maybe a bit flippantly critical of AIGA by saying that, but it's, it's kind of true. I mean, I can just give an example. When I was on the task force, one of the things that I really, when I say the task force, it's the uh, diversity and inclusion task force as part of AIGA at the headquarters. One mm -hmm. of the things that I really wanted to do was try to increase the number of student groups that were at HBCUs, because I think there's only maybe, one or two groups at HBCUs and HBCUs tend to be over indexed on the East coast and the South. There's, I don't think there's any past Texas perhaps or something. So what do we do to kind of get, you know, as we look at like getting more black designers in the field and stuff, how do we increase the number of student groups? So then they can see that this is a viable option from the gate. Well, then I, I encounter that there's all these like goalposts, that need to be crossed in order for that to happen. So in order for there to have a student group, it has to be endorsed by a local chapter in that state, for example. And so the leader of the student group must also be a member mm -hmm. of the, the city chapter or whatever, whatever that city chapter is. Also the students have to pay $50 a year. I think, I don't know if they've eliminated this, this, uh, this tier or not, I heard that they had, I heard that they completely got rid of the $50 a year tier, but you have to pay $50 a year to be a member 
And I think I was talking to someone about it and was saying, you know, well, is there a way that we can like wave that in a way? Like, say, for example, we're just trying to sort of get seed groups started, you know, at certain HBCUs. It's it's if you need to have 10 members, that's five hundred dollars. Is there not a way that we can waive that just to see if having a student group here is something that can be done? But then I'm told, oh, well, also the faculty member needs to be an AIJ member themselves. And they also need to submit research on this, that, and the third. And I'm like, right. why are there all of these? Uh, and, and maybe for other schools, these are just drops in the bucket. Right. But to me, it just felt like, why are you putting all of these steps between what the goal is and, and where we at right now? Right. You know, eventually what ended up happening was we didn't get the, we didn't get it going one, because when we heard back from students, they were saying $50 is too expensive. And and again, this is some of the feedback that I would get, mostly from much older people, would be like, $50, that's that's nothing. Kids have $50 these days. You can spend $50 on a video game. You can spend $50 on you know an AIGA membership. I'm like, yeah, but they're probably going to get more value and good times out of that video game. Like, real talk. But do you remember college? <laughs> like it, like it's a different world, it's a different, you know, assignment of value to, you know, each individual dollar. Yeah. I, I had two jobs in college and was still broke. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it was not, I don't think you're, I, well, I don't know. Like, I don't think I know anybody that was, you know, comfortable in college in terms of like, right. You know, able to go out and spend whatever they wanted on whatever they wanted. I have to ask this, you know, we're talking, you know, very critically about AIGA. And of course, you're a member of your local chapter in a leadership position. Do you feel like there's a conflict between like your role as an educator, the the current kind of feelings you have about the organization? And I guess, I don't know what you're doing right now with, I don't know, is, is there a conflict? I guess is what I'm curious about. Do you feel that in any sort of way? Probably. There probably is. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, that's whether there is or is not a conflict is not one of the things that I would focus on as important. And like in terms of really you know, asking questions is really important in my life and in my work, like in looking at or being able to identify you know, the questions that revolve around this conflict like that's what's important to me, right? Like, do I, am I functioning in a capacity in education where I'm trying to better young people's lives? Do I believe that the design community in Chicago is doing a good job? Like, can they do better? Like, is my involvement in this design community or AIGA going to assist in that betterment, right? Like these questions, I don't, it's like, I don't know if there's a, conflict in my point of view or in my association with the community but i think that i'm putting myself in a position where i'm trying to help how do you think we can increase diversity in the design community when like there are challenges right now with let's say with identity for example um and when i say identity i'm using that in a very broad way i'm also thinking of diversity in a very broad way I'll give you an example. Uh, AIGA, going back to AIGA, traditional organization deals with print designers mostly. 
um, but hasn't really done a lot around the modern concept of a designer. Like when we think of a UX designer or a maybe motion graphics designer or say a um, product designer, not really a place for them in AIGA. Um, about two years ago, I interviewed uh, this guy. He's in Seattle. His name is Timothy Bardlevins. And he wrote this piece on Medium about saying goodbye to the organization because to him, he didn't feel like the organization valued him as a UX designer. So it wasn't even an uh, issue of uh, race. He's a black man. It didn't have anything to do with that. It was more so like I'm at the point where I'm giving $5,000 a year to AIGA. And what you're telling me is that my profession doesn't matter to the organization. How do you think we can help kind of increase diversity in the community given challenges like that? No, I, I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer for that. <laughs> I've got tons of um, questions, but I think that, you know, the beginning of an answer to that probably looks at, right, like this idea of, you know, the binary that applies to like, a lot of things, right? Like applies to, uh, what art is, what design is, like what what people are, what like what identities for people are, right? Like if we can start by getting out of this mindset where everything is, you know, a binary answer, mm -hmm. like a yes or no, a an either or, I think that we could get closer to being more inclusive because we're going to have to start looking at everything that's you know in in that middle ground in the gray area in identifying what and who is is in there right like if you can't acknowledge like what's in the middle ground what's in the gray right then you can't figure out who it is what their names are what they're called and you're not going to be able to include them at all so mm -hmm. i think that would be a good start yeah Right? Like if you're talking about, you know, the design field, like the question isn't, you know, are you a graphic designer or not? Right. Because what does that even mean? This is why generally I like to, you know, frame people, practices, methods in the field as, you know, creatives or, or makers, right? Because that can encompass a lot of different things. Right? A lot of different ways of working, a lot of different ways of being, a lot of different interests. Like in that, that's one of the things that you know is going to make the community stronger is by I don't know maybe letting go of these strict definitions of identity and role. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like the, a question about like what someone is or isn't is like weird to me anyway. And I hate to keep taking it back to this, right? But AIGA, it's like even if somebody <laughs> like had no degree, no no role, no profession in graphic design, but they wanted to be involved, I would think that that would be of interest to the community because they're interested, right? And I think that that should probably be one of the defining aspects of of the community is being interested in the community. Mm -hmm. I, I can see that. I mean, and I'll be honest with you. And again, I know we keep going back to AIGA. Uh, for the longest time, I was told that you had to be uh, like you had to went to art school or have like a degree in design to be a member of AIGA. Like I, I have been told this 
for years. Like my background is in math. I don't have a design degree, didn't go to design school or anything. It wasn't until I spoke with someone from AIGA in 2014 that kind of convinced me to join. And then I was able to kind of be a part of things. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I totally understand that. Like we, you do have to kind of break out of that notion of what, uh, what a designer is or what that binary is. Like if you're part of it, or if you're not part of it, but it, it is a, it's a tricky question, but I feel like as I certainly, I think as technology has influenced design, it's what's precipitating the change in these kinds of organizations. And that's, what's fueling these kinds of questions, right? Um, technology has made it a lot easier for people to be designers or to be in this field without maybe having gone through a traditional path. Technology has made it now. So there is no traditional path in design. You can get into this, whether you went to school, didn't go to school, doesn't really matter. Um, So I think as we acknowledge that, certainly there needs to be more discussion around what that means in terms of inclusion and diversity, but also just, I think, overall acceptance of the field. Because I think one thing we can all agree is that whether we went to design school or not, the value of design is is grossly different in different spheres, right? Right. Like designers might recognize other designers with the business world, eh, right. not so much. If, if you're a freelancer, you certainly know how hard it can be to sell your services to a client that doesn't value design. They just see it as a means to an end. So it's a it's an ongoing conversation, I feel. Yeah, and I think that, right, like looking at, how technology plays a role in this and you know the democratization of you know tools creative tools uh technological tools and software like the conversation has to shift and i think it will shift and like much faster because right like all of these things that we've come to learn and understand in a traditional sense like are not going to exist anymore and i think that we're going to have to you know adjust how we assign value now with your background being in graphic design as well as fine art how do you see art and design benefiting from each other well i think that's interesting because uh well and this is like one of the ideas that i focused on you know working on my thesis in grad school like i'm not entirely i've never been entirely sure that uh, the distinction really matters. It's like I'm told repeatedly that it's super important and that art is art and it can't be design and design is design and it can't be art. And it's like, sure, I guess. I don't think that it's super important to answer that question, right? But when you start looking at, looking at it more from an angle of how these things play a role in society and what they do to people and for people, I think that that's a more interesting perspective to examine it from. Like if you're talking about uh, like how art and design can inform each other, they have, they always have, and you know, they always will. It's like the tools are not, not different. Uh, the ideas, concepts are, well, sometimes they're different, but sometimes you know, they're not. Like, I think the conversation, I mean, for me at least, is, you know, how visual language and visual communication can play a role uh, in helping people, in shaping their lives. You know, and when I say help people, it's like, 
you know, help them in terms of, you know, literacy, getting up the block, you know, feeling good about themselves, like supporting, you know, mental health or it's like, I mean, help in a really broad way. Right. So the distinction between art and design isn't as important as looking at them both through a lens of visual language and how that can be used to help society and help, mm-hmm. you know, culture. When did you know that this was what you wanted to do for a living? Uh, I'm not entirely sure that I, I do know that. Um, <laughs> I have lots of different uh, interests and I'm interested in a lot of things. Um, okay. Being involved in art and design is important to me. <laughs> but I think that in terms of like making a you know solid, confident decision about you know pursuing art and design and not something like you know the philosophy or physics i i'm still not entirely sure that i have to choose but i mean i love love fine art and i love design and that's what i'm doing right now but i mean i tell my students this a a lot of the time right like because you are practicing graphic design that doesn't mean that your entire focus your entire world should be designed i think is creatives and makers, like we're informed by lots of different things, right? Like everything that we're looking at, like reading and absorbing throughout the day and throughout our lives, all of these things are going to inform who you are as a creative, right? So I think it's kind of a misstep to like pin, pin people down in terms of telling them what they should be interested in because they've chosen a certain path. Like, because I'm an artist and a designer, it's like I don't sit around and, you know, look online reading art and design blogs or only reading, you know, graphic design books. It's like it's a really large world with really interesting things and all of those things are or can be connected somehow. So I don't, I think that was a, I'm not entirely sure I even answered your question. Let me flip it then. So... If you weren't doing what you were doing, what you're doing right now as a design educator, uh, what would you be? What would you want to do? I think I would be a scientist of some sort, probably, uh, probably functioning in, you know, physics or psychology. Okay. And I think that that probably creeps into a lot of my work in a lot of different ways, especially in terms of, you know, curiosity and experimentation. So, I'm, you know, kind of like a design scientist design scientists there might be a there might be a an opening for that somewhere there might be an option to do that yeah i need to look into that it'd be a fascinating job i did interview someone this was years ago but she's a doctor she's a medical doctor and a designer so i think it's possible see and that's what i'm talking about like this decision about like that that one thing that you want to like do is i don't know unnecessary yeah I think there's so many things to be interested in and to learn about. It's like, you know, if you're interested in something, learn about it. It's like you can go sit at your desk and be a graphic designer all day long. It doesn't mean you have to sit at home and read graphic design books when you get home. Go read something else. So what's next for you? Like, where do you see yourself in the the next few years or so? Oh, that's a good question, Um, right? Because everything in my life is... (laughs) 
of making and teaching. So it will probably look something like that. Um, I'm working really hard on uh, getting tenured, so that's probably going to be a part of it. But I want to continue to experiment in everything that I'm you know, doing in in art and in design and what that intersection looks like. But I'm also really interested in uh, literature, and I'd love to be able to write a book. Um, and I've got tons of ideas about what that looks like. Actually, let me take that back. That might actually be like my dream project. I want to you know, write a book and also you know, design it. Okay. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Well, my website is jonathansangster.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-A-N-G-S-T-E-R. Uh, gangster is spelled like Sangster. I think that helps a lot of people you know, pin that. Okay. Uh, it makes it a little bit easier. Um, and I also post pretty regularly on Instagram as well. And my handle there is Jonathan underscore Sangster. Those are the two primary visual outputs for where you can find my work. And also, if you want to reach out and have a conversation about art, design, collaborating, work, education, let me know. Sounds good. Well, Jonathan Sangster, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think it's important for designers, wherever we're at in our profession, freelance, in-house, just starting out, whatever, to kind of be able to look at not just ourselves critically, but look at the field critically and what we represent and know that, you know, there's not just one path that we can take. There's certainly different paths that we can go down and that it's important, you know, as I think you said before, to function in these areas where there's not such a clear cut binary choice between things. So I hope in this interview, people get that from from what you said. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Jonathan Sangster and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Jonathan and their work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash revision path. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Google Design, and MailChimp. With a community of over 2 billion people, the design team at Facebook works on a diverse range of problems. Whether it's designing for social impact or working on the latest version of a Facebook feature, the design team at Facebook takes challenges head on to improve the platform for everyone. Sound interesting? Then learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing platform for small businesses. Aside from having such a great product, the culture at MailChimp is pretty great too. They work to create a diverse and vibrant company culture that not only encourages a healthy work-life balance, but also gives employees time to volunteer, learn new skills, and share their work. Learn more about MailChimp and their culture by visiting MailChimp.com today. Revision Path is brought to you by Glitch, the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. 
Check us out at glitch.com. We're also powered by Simplecast, the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. This episode was edited by Keisha T.K. Dutez, one of our new producers, along with production from our new assistant producer, Deanna Testa. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.